typically speaking, when people go on vegan diets and research studies, their overall quality of life improves in a lot of ways. And, and one of those domains that we look at is sleep, and it very often does get better. Why would that be? Some things are really obvious. If you lose a lot of weight and your sleep apnea is no longer a problem, and you no longer need the device to help you to breathe and you're breathing fine on your own, obviously people sleep much better. But we think that there is also something just about the effect of diet on brain chemistry, so that mood is a little bit better, depression is lightened up a little bit, anxieties are calmed, and those things seem to help sleep be a little bit better too. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us in more than 130 countries around the world and in healthy cities coast to coast in the U.S. like Wichita, Kansas, Juneau, Alaska, and Panama City, Florida. We appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 93 of season 4, number 288 overall. And today's top question, how does food affect sleep? Is that so-called fourth meal your ticket to eight hours of glorious shut-eye, or is it a recipe for insomnia? And beyond meal timing, what about healthy eating options versus those greasy grab-and-go snacks or even fast food? And how might a plant-based diet improve your sleep? Well, we got answers to all of those questions recently on The Exam Room Live. That is the show that we do every Wednesday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on YouTube and on Facebook. And the man who gave us those answers is none other than Dr. Neil Barnard. So glad that he was able to come on the show. And we're also going to be opening up the doctor's mailbag, as we always do. And that means Dr. Barnard will be answering a lot of the questions that you guys were kind enough to send in as well. Questions like, what nutrients are the most important for sleep? And what's the latest you should eat at night? And what do you do if you work an overnight shift? How are you supposed to eat then? We'll find out. Plus, we're going to be getting into B12 and fasting, and we're also going to do a deep dive on blood viscosity. That's how thick your blood is and how that is directly related to your diet. So all of that and a heck of a lot more. But before we open up the doctor's mailbag, I wanted to say a special thank you to the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund for helping us raise our health IQs today. Their support of the Exam Room podcast makes today's episode possible. And the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund supports organizations like the Physicians Committee that carry on Greg's love for animals by promoting plant-based health and working to end animal abuse. You can visit the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund online right now at GregoryRyderFund.org. That's Gregory Ryder, R-E-I-T-E-R, Fund.org. Okay, it is time now to talk about sleep, but I promise this show will not make you drowsy, but it should, it should help you sleep better later on tonight. And the man with the master sleep plan is Dr. Neil Barnard. Sir, it is good to see you again. Good to see you, Chuck. 
Food and sleep, they they seem like they go hand in hand. And this morning I was doing some research before the show. And according to the CDC, one out of three adults in this country say that they struggle to get sleep on any given night. I honestly think that that number could be a little bit higher. But I mean, how sleep deprived do you think we are right now as a country? Um, I think I, I agree with you, Chuck. I think not only do, do one in three people report it, but there's probably another one in three who don't report it because this has become their new normal. They're waking up, they're not getting a good night's sleep, and they thought, well, that's just what happens in adulthood. Uh, but that's a problem because if you're not getting good night's sleep, um, you're not able to integrate the things you've learned during the day. Your emotions are not as well integrated either, and it makes life just a little more challenging. Well, let's see if we can get some help to those uh, one out of three and, and the others who just kind of settled into that sleep-deprived normal. We'll take the first question from Patricia, and she's wondering how food affects sleep. She says, I don't sleep well at all if I eat junk food. Yeah, uh, foods affect uh, sleep in a great many ways. and A couple of them are really obvious. Anything with caffeine. In um, caffeine, people use it specifically to make sleep go away in the morning. The problem is, that everybody eliminates the caffeine differently. There are some people who eliminate their caffeine pretty quickly after their morning cup of joe, but there are other people who it's nine o'clock, 10 o'clock at night, and about a quarter of that cup of morning coffee, that caffeine is still circulating in their blood. And so their sleep ends up being a little bit lighter, a little bit easier to disturb. Um, alcohol affects sleep. Uh, alcohol lures you into sleep a little bit, but then, a little after midnight, that alcohol is modified by your liver to another compound called an aldehyde, as in Dr. Jekyll. Um, aldehydes are stimulants. And so you'll find your, your sleep gets rocky around 2, 3, 4 in the morning. So those are some real obvious things. Um, carbohydrate generally helps sleep. When I say carbohydrate, starch, um, bread, that kind of thing. It stimulates the production of serotonin which helps you sleep. High protein foods do the opposite. They make sleep uh, less likely. So uh, also when you're talking about carbs, I'm, I'm assuming you're talking about complex carbohydrates and not necessarily those that would be found in say a donut. Um, yeah, and a, and a donut is a special case because it does have some carbs in it. It has some flour, it's got some sugar, but it's got a big load of grease uh, baked into it. And that's true for cookies, cakes, pies in general, and that can be harmful. And uh, the next question comes to us from Nyree. Specifically, she's wondering whether there have been any studies on plant-based diets and the effect that they may have on sleep quality. Typically speaking, when people go on vegan diets and research studies, their overall quality of life improves in a lot of ways. And, and one of those domains that, we, domains that we look at is sleep, and it very often does get better. Um, why would that be? Some things are really, really obvious. If you lose a lot of weight and your sleep apnea is no longer a problem and you no longer need the device to, to help you to breathe and, and that kind of thing and you're breathing fine on your own obviously sleep people sleep much better if you've knocked out your hot flashes and chuck you know you and i have been talking about the the, the waves study that we did showing that a plant-based diet is really helpful against hot flashes if you're not waking up every couple hours in a in a sweat you're going to sleep better too but we think that there is also something just about the effect of diet on brain chemistry so that mood is a little bit better, depression is uh, lightened up a little bit, anxieties are calmed, and those things seem to help sleep be a little bit better too. Now, don't get me wrong, Chuck. I don't want to say that everybody who um, 
follows a completely plant-based vegan diet suddenly sleeps like babies because they still have the weight of the world on their shoulders too. <laughs> they have problems to deal with and things in the world that they want to change. Um, and they may not have won the lottery yet either. So there could still be reasons why we don't sleep very well, but a plant-based diet is one of the ways that, uh, it, that, uh, that we can be helped. A little bit earlier in the show, uh, mentioned the term fourth meal, which means eating late at night. And that brings us to Annie's question. And she's wondering, what is the latest we should be eating at night? Is there a cutoff time? I don't think we have a particularly good cutoff time. There are people who feel that late night eating is really, really interferes with sleep. It may be that it's more a question of what it is that you have um, and what you were, how you were doing before. Like, let's say you had a really early dinner. And it's now 9.30 and 10, you're thinking about going to sleep, but you're kind of hungry. Um, some people sleep better if they have a little bit of a meal so that they're not running really low blood sugar in the middle of the night and, and waking up for that reason. Um, but the quality of the meal depend, it matters a lot. And when I say quality, um, let's say you had a high protein uh, meal, uh, meat, eggs, dairy products, or even plant-based uh, proteins like uh, high uh, foods in tempeh uh, with tempeh or um, beans or something like that. Protein uh, interferes with sleep. It actually blocks the brain's ability to produce serotonin, which you need when you sleep. So don't do that. Um, if instead uh, you're hungry, have something really light, a piece of fruit, some bread, something like that, and your sleep will generally be much better. And what about those people who work overnight, the shift workers? Maya is one of them. She's wondering when should someone who works overnight eat? I mean, what, what is the best schedule there? That's got to be a difficult one. It is. And it's um, much more difficult if it's intermittent. So if you work in the day shift, Monday through Friday, and suddenly got to work Saturday night shift, your body hasn't had a chance to equilibrate. If you are on night shift and it's steady, you know what your pattern is. You can go into the pattern and it's basically the same as during the day. Have your meals at regular times. And normally speaking, you don't want to have a heavy, especially not a high protein meal just before you go to sleep. Um, if it's an intermittent kind of thing, you just do your best. Um, try to eat healthful foods. Don't let sleep deprivation lead you into junk food eating. You know what I'm talking about. If you're groggy and you feel crummy because you slept poorly last night, you'll eat anything just to get through the day today. It's good to uh, surround yourself with healthy foods so that you don't end up doing yourself some harm. Well, we've talked a lot about food so far, but now let's talk about water. Paul is wondering at 12.06 whether drinking water before going to bed can improve sleep quality. It can if you're dehydrated, but it can interfere with sleep if you're overdoing it for the obvious reason is that you're going to have to get up pretty soon. M. Knob, 12.06 as well. Do magnesium-rich foods help when it comes to sleep? Not that I've seen. Uh, great question, but I haven't seen any evidence that uh, uh, magnesium-rich foods are really going to help. Gerardo, 12.08, specifically wondering about bananas. Uh, well, a banana is famous because it's got potassium that brings your blood pressure into a healthier range. That's all good. But it's a great source of really healthy carbohydrate. And as we mentioned a couple times already, that helps your body to make serotonin and that'll help you to sleep. So banana, banana gets a green light. We had somebody in the chat room uh, earlier, I, I'm forgive me, I can't find the exact question right now, but they said that every time that they eat raw greens, they can't fall asleep for at least two hours. I don't know if they get turbocharged on it or what, but they were wondering if you had heard of that before, is that normal? If it's happening to you, believe it. Um, when you're talking about raw greens, let's think about what, what, what are in greens. 
Um, green vegetables like uh, kale and collards and, and broccoli, what do they have? They've got a lot of fiber. They have a surprisingly large amount of protein and they're not starchy. They're not like a sweet potato. So what, what does that mean? Uh, you're getting, relatively speaking, a pretty high protein food that's not very high in the carbohydrates that are going to release serotonin. So it's not a big surprise that that's a food that's going to interfere with sleep. So what does that mean? Uh, let's say it's morning. Morning's a good time for high protein foods, uh, not, not animal protein. But if in the morning you have veggie bacon, veggie sausage, or beans, beans are a high protein food that Americans tend not to eat for breakfast, but everybody else does. If you were in London right now or in Sydney, uh, they would have beans on the breakfast buffet everywhere. Um, if you were in Mexico, they would have black beans. Um, high protein foods in the morning tend to help people to kind of put the sleep behind them and, and wake up and do, and do better. Um, which is why some people will replace bacon with say grilled tofu or uh, grilled tempeh. They are high protein, but without the cholesterol. So many great people hanging out with us in the chat room today. A lot of great exam roomies. Susie Q, Forest View, Tofu Tuesday. I always love it when she's here on a Wednesday. Uh, Lisa, Jean, so many great people. Gina, uh, and a special hello also to Lego DC. Thank you all so very much for hanging out with us here today. Uh, Dr. Barnard, let's switch gears for a little bit. We'll come back. I'm sure that there will be more questions about sleep momentarily, but let's take a question really quickly from Ashley, who is wondering whether it's okay to exercise before breakfast because you've been fasting. Do you need something in your stomach before you get out there and go? No, you don't need anything in your stomach. You go for it. Absolutely. That's perfectly fine. Why? Your muscles are running on glucose. That's their fuel. And even if you didn't have any breakfast, you've got glucose because your muscles stored it. It's glycogen. It's there. It's batteries. It's charged up. You are ready to go. Uh, don't forget your bottle of water because you don't want to get dehydrated. But no, you don't need to eat uh, before you go. And a lot of people don't want to eat before they exercise because they don't want to have food jostling all around in their stomach when they're up between mile three and mile four. So um, you go ahead. You don't have to have breakfast before you exercise. Uh, she's got a follow-up as well. Should you then be eating extra calories after you've exercised on an empty stomach? Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and it's, you don't have to do it intentionally. Your body knows that you just burned some calories. How much? About 100 calories per mile. And surprise, that's true whether you walked it, jogged it, or ran it at full tilt. Um, about 100 calories per mile. With It depends on your size and, and other things. But your body knows that. And so after your 5K, your body says, well, <laughs> I think we better have a little extra food because your body wants to, to not only... Um, uh, have the energy that you're going to need because you've de depleted some glucose, but it wants to also store up some extra glycogen in your muscles and liver in case you decide to do the same thing the next day. So, yep, you're going to be eating more and it, it happens automatically. Let's uh, switch back to sleep. The conversation continues on right now with the exam roomies in the chat. Uh, some are wondering about the connection between melatonin and sleep. If you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Melatonin has been talked about for a long, long time. And there are some, some best-selling books about using melatonin and some would call it a miracle. I think that's overselling it, but it works. It's uh, Melatonin is something that can be used as a supplement and it does help promote sleep and it seems to be safe. And uh, Bulent, our friend, uh, you know, he's he's the uh, muscle-bound vegan. Uh, he's wondering if tart cherries are a really good source of melatonin. I would have guessed not, but I think I'm going to have to look that up and see.
Fair enough. Uh, let's see here. Cherie, she is transitioning right now to a plant-based diet, but she said, look, you know, I've been having these headaches since I made the switch. Is it possible for someone after they switch to a plant-based diet to have some headaches? Okay. Um, we did a study a number of years ago on migraines. Um, and specifically, we used diet changes to see if, if migraines could go away. Um, and by the way, a migraine is not just a bad headache. A migraine is a specific type. It's pounding, not constant. It's sort of an air hammer against your head, usually on one side, sometimes both sides, but usually one side. And along with the headache comes a sense of really being sick to your stomach. And, um, and it lasts a really long time. It's not just a stress headache that comes and goes. Um, and so what about diet? Researchers have found, and, and people with migraines have found, that certain foods trigger their headaches. Dairy is probably number one, but others can too. Uh, chocolate can do it. For some people, something like citrus fruits can do it. There, there's about a dozen uh, common triggers, but dairy is probably the most common. If you eliminate the common triggers and your migraines go away, then you could put those triggers back into your diet and see which ones really are the bad triggers and which ones you, you can add them without a problem. A lot of people do that kind of elimination diet and I've written about it in my book, The Cheese Trap, in case you want to try it. But now you went vegan and your headaches started. What's that about? What I would do is I would look to see if there was something new that you added. If um, I'm going to make it up. Let's say uh, you really weren't doing tomatoes much before, and now you're having lots of tomato sauces. And although they're very healthy, if you have a little sensitivity to them, you might be having symptoms you wouldn't have had otherwise. So look to see if there's something new that you've added. You might eliminate that for a while, see if the migraines don't get better. Now, let's, uh, let's go back again to sleep. Hot topic still. Uh, you mentioned that sometimes when you eat that junk food late at night, you wake up and you just feel kind of, eh, you just bloated, just not really yourself. Um, but Sophie at 1214 is wondering whether it's normal to feel a little bit dizzy after eating a lot of junk food the night before. Have you heard of that connection at all? Let me make sure I understand. So this is a person who's gone to sleep and in the middle of the night they wake up and at that point they're feeling dizzy and the room is spinning around or something. Um, if that's the idea, no, I, I have not heard of that. Um, if It really depends on the specifics of what you're experiencing, but if you're having vertigo or something like that, you might want to see a doctor and try to find out what that's about. Um, if it's an occasional thing, it doesn't really sound. If, it's, if this is a rare case of just feeling kind of dizzy and it goes away, that's not vertigo and I wouldn't worry about it probably. Uh, you, we talked a little bit about food and mood as well earlier, but Arzu is wondering specifically about the connection between a plant-based diet and anxiety. Is there any relief that somebody could have with uh, an anxiety problem if they take meat, they take dairy out of their diet? Yeah. Um, when we did our studies with GEICO, the GEICO insurance company, um, we brought in lots of people who all worked there and they changed their diets. And we noticed that anxiety was one of the things that got better in that group. That wasn't the reason we did the study. We did the study to help them lose weight and improve their diabetes, but depression seemed to lift a bit and anxiety seemed to improve a lot as well. Um, now, on the other hand, let's say you made a diet change and now you're feeling a little more anxious or more on edge or something like that. I suspect that that can happen. If a person's diet has gone too high in carbohydrate in the morning without some protein 
in it. Now, now, I'm not talking about animal protein. What I would say is that when a person starts their day with some plant-based protein, um, grilled tofu, grilled tempeh, what's grilled tempeh? Um, go to the store and you get tempeh and marinate it for a couple seconds in soy sauce. Put it in your nonstick pan, cook it on both sides. And it's sort of like bacon, except that it's, it's high in protein, but it doesn't have any cholesterol or no animal fat. Those high protein foods, tofu, tempeh, beans, veggie bacon, veggie sausage. If you start your day with those foods and then have the carbohydrate rich foods right afterwards, uh, oatmeal, toast, or fruit, somehow having that pre-treatment with the plant-based protein will put you on a better, a more even keel later in the day. Uh, scientists explain this as the protein blocks the production of serotonin that the carbohydrate would otherwise cause. And during the day, that's a good change. So if you're feeling a little uh, not yourself, a little depressed, um, a little anxious, you might try this plant protein first thing in the morning and see how you do. You can have the carbs immediately afterward, but have the first thing that you eat be a plant protein food like tofu tempeh, scrambled tofu, veggie sausage, veggie bacon, uh, those kinds of things. Let's reach into the mailbag here, get a wild card question. JD at 1218 writes, I've been told that mushrooms should not be eaten raw. Is that true? Uh, yeah, it probably is true. Um, they probably should be cooked. Uh, there are traces of formaldehyde in some of them. Ooh, that doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun. Uh <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and, you know, you'd think that, that raw mushrooms are great. You could put them on a salad, but evidence suggests that generally speaking, you want to cook them. Uh, Alicia, what is the best form of B12, cyanocobalamin or methylcobalamin? The best form is the one that you take. Um, you are right. There is cyanocobalamin. There's methylcobalamin. Um, you'll see both on the shelf. Uh, they're both fine. They're both perfectly effective. The cyanocobalamin frightens people because it has the word cyan in it, like cyanide. Um, it's really just a theoretical thing. The amounts there are trivial. They won't, they won't hurt you with uh the b12 is good the, the one thing that i would pay attention to is the amount you need very little um the the average person the average adult adult needs 2.4 micrograms it's not a gram it's not a milligram it's a microgram and you go to the store and you don't find any that are that small and you might find one that's 100 maybe 500 okay fair enough but you don't need the one that says 5,000 micrograms uh, 10,000 micrograms. You don't need that unless your doctor has specifically prescribed it to make up for deficiency. And uh, she had a follow-up. She's wondering, uh, because we need so little, is it okay or is she getting enough if she takes 1,000 micrograms of it once a week? Uh, probably yes, or um, maybe every two or three days, something like that would be fine. Nobody knows the exact number and your doctor can test uh, very easily to see if you are in the right track. But you're thinking right. If you get a, a huge pill, like a thousand is a lot, um, you can either split them in two, but if they're really tiny, that's challenging. So take it every other day or every third day. Uh, we have a question about selenium from uh, Live Go Vegan at 1221. They are wondering what foods are rich in selenium? Uh, selenium is a mineral. It's in the soil. And so the amount in foods depends a little bit less on what food it is and a little bit more on where it was grown because the amounts are, are really quite variable. That said, um, if you look on just about any 
Buddy's website where they're listing selenium-rich foods. The Brazil nut always comes in at number one. Um, so much so that people say don't have too many because like all elements you need a little bit, you don't need too much. So if you have one Brazil nut, leave it there. This is a pretty good question uh, from David. How can a whole food plant-based diet protect against the recurrence of lymphoma? You know, lymphoma is a blood cancer. If that's what you have been dealing with, I'm sorry that you've had that challenge. Obviously, the good news is that our medical treatments are much, much better nowadays than they were before. So hopefully all is well. Um, but when we're looking at recurrence of cancer, we have pretty good evidence on uh, digestive cancers like colorectal cancer and even more on hormone-related cancers like uh, prostate cancer in men, breast cancer, particularly in women. Um, not really good data on lymphoma and leukemia, which is my way of saying, I think we need a lot more research there before, before we really know what the effective diet is gonna be. That said, um, we do have a pattern that generally speaking, a plant-based diet, rich in vegetables, rich in fruits, rich in healthy minerals, gives you what the body needs to heal and to have a good immune function. So it's good general advice for people in general, but we really do need more studies of exactly the type that you're hint, uh, hinting at so that we can have better data in the future. Because for right now, people with lymphoma, people with leukemias haven't really been recruited for good studies on survival with regard to certain dietary patterns. Let's hop back to B12. We have a lot of follow-ups right now. We'll start with uh, Peter at 1223. Uh, says that his mom went vegan eight months ago and has since been diagnosed with anemia. Peter's wondering whether B12 may help. Uh, it may. Um, if she's anemic, first of all, she should be definitely seeing her doctor because the doctor will test her not just to see if she's anemic, which, which means you don't have enough red blood cells circulating in your body. Um, if she thinks she's anemic because she's tired, she's got to go to the doctor and see, is she actually anemic? Because if she, if she is, then the doctor is going to do some other tests to find out why. One common form is iron deficiency anemia. You're not getting enough iron. And in the old days, people would say, you need red meat for iron. You need liver for iron. Mistake. They have iron, but they end up having too much. And as bad as it is to be low in iron, it is just as bad to be high in iron because that increases the risk of cardiovascular disease, I'm talking about heart disease, and also of Alzheimer's disease. So uh, you do need iron, but you don't need meat, you don't need liver. Green vegetables, beans, plants in general bring you plenty of iron. So bring the greens into your diet. And the beauty of, of that is that the iron that they have is a special form called non-heme iron that is more absorbable if you're low in iron and less absorbable if you've got a lot of iron on board already. So it's the kind your body was really designed for. Make sure you got that. But what if she doesn't have iron deficiency anemia? What if she has a, uh, some other kind of anemia? Um, B12 deficiency can lead to anemia. Some people end up anemic because they're having blood loss uh, from the digestive tract or something else. Doctors need to evaluate all of those things. Question from Lisa, 1223. Does age affect the amount of B12 a person would need? No, not really. Um, once, you, once you hit 18, 19 years of age, you're at the adult dose, and it's 2.4 micrograms. And even, even below that, um, there, there are, if you're the smaller you are, the less you need, um, as a general rule. But, um, but no, as, as you reach your 30s and 40s and 50s, you don't see a big change. 
Uh, don't worry, be happy. Excellent screen name. 1223. Can you get enough B12 if you are just drinking a few cups of fortified soy milk every day as opposed to taking a tablet? Uh, depends on the, the amount um, that's that it's fortified with. Read the, They're all different. Read the label and it will typically indicate the percentage of the daily value that one serving gives you. And so you can do the math and you can see how you get the full daily serving. And if you're doing that, uh, yes, it'll work. But most people don't quite get there because that cup of soy milk they put on their cornflakes in the morning does have some B12 if it's B12 fortified, but probably not the full RDA. Let's take a question from Bethany, and maybe this is something that came up during the WAVES study as well. She says, I love my soybeans for hot flashes, which have been interrupting my sleep, but I'm still gassy after several months. What can I do? Oh, okay. Sorry to hear that. Um, it's, first of all, dose-related. So the amount of soybeans that we used in the WAVES study was a half a cup. Um, and if a half a cup at one time is a lot for you, you can break it up into uh, two quarter cup servings. That will greatly reduce it. Uh, or you can break it up even, even more and use them sort of like pine nuts on your, on your salad. Or uh, you, will, you can roast them yourself or you can buy them pre-roasted on Amazon. You'll see there, there's a brand called Toasteds, T-O-S-T-E-D. Uh, or, or you can roast them yourself. 350 degrees, one hour, uh, you put cooked soybeans on a baking sheet. They came out of your instant pot, they're fully cooked. Throw them now into your oven for an hour and they're gonna come out um, uh, nicely toasted. The reason I'm mentioning that is now you're not gonna eat the whole half a cup at one time. You'll have a sort of a snack that you'll have kind of throughout the day and that'll be easier on your digestive tract. Um, one other thing, if, you're, if you are not cooking them thoroughly or if you bought a commercial brand that's a little crunchy, you don't want al dente soybeans. They are going to be a digestive challenge. They should be thoroughly cooked. Uh, let's go back to B12 here for one second. Marianne at 1228 says, I've got one more B12 question. Uh, how much is too much and what are the repercussions of overdoing it? Oh, what a great question. Uh, we don't know the full answer to that, but a study came out probably about two years ago that seemed to suggest that people who are having very high levels of B12 were in trouble. But what they were reporting was not an oral dose, it was blood tests. Uh, people who had too much B12 circulating in their blood seemed to, to uh, not do as well. In fact, if you track them over time, they seem to have higher mortality, or I guess the way you put it is earlier mortality compared to other people. Okay, so that scared everyone and made us think, gee, I need B12, but don't overdo it. So we are now thinking instead of the 1,000 micrograms a day or 2,000, we have 500 or 100 or something like that. Okay, that's good advice. But then the, another page turned. And that was, it looked like the people who had high B12 levels in their blood were not people who were supplementing a lot. They were people who had liver disease and their damaged livers were, the cells were opening up and releasing B12 into their bloodstream. In other words, damaged cells kind of would allow the B12 to uh, be artificially high in their bloodstream. So scientists took a deep breath and came up with the following conclusion. We think that it's still prudent to have the amount of B12 that you need and to not have an excess. We don't know the amount uh, of dietary intake that's excessive, um, but your doctor can test your B12 levels and if you're really, really high, then you can back off. 
And lastly, we don't really have good evidence that a high level of B12 is really toxic uh, for you because it looks like those, those studies uh, were a little bit of a false alarm around supplementation. So take your B12, keep it modest, keep it regular, and I would leave it at that. Uh, let's bounce around a little bit. Go back to Bulin. He's coming strong with the good questions today. Uh, have you seen the movie The Game Changers, Dr. Barnard? Have I seen the movie The Game Changers? Hasn't yeah. everyone? <laughs> Has I, I ask because they do a really good job of actually showing uh, examples of blood viscosity and what happens when you eat this versus that. So Bulent's question at 1228, he's wondering whether there's a correlation between blood viscosity and weight management. Oh, what a great question. This is really for extra credit. Um, okay, uh, first of all, for people should know what viscosity is. Uh, people who change their motor oil know what viscosity is, but nobody else has a clue. Viscosity means thickness. So the motor oil analogy is if I am up in uh, the frozen Northland of San Fargo where I grew up, uh, you, you want an oil that isn't going to get all sludgy in the cold months. Uh, or other places you might want that is, is thicker. You might want one that's thicker. Where I grew up, you want one that's thinner. Your blood can be like motor oil, meaning it can be thicker, more viscous, harder to circulate. Um, or it can be thinner, like water, easy to circulate. Which do you want? You want your blood to be more like water so that it takes the oxygen molecules out of your lungs and brings them right to your, your body. Uh, it brings them to your muscles, brings them to your brain. And if you have a fatty meal, that will increase your blood viscosity and it increases it fast. Uh, Thanksgiving day, people have turkey with gravy. The fat out of the turkey, the fat in the gravy, the fat that was added, unfortunately, to the sweet potatoes, which are otherwise healthy, but the butter and stuff that's in them gets into your blood. Your blood becomes viscous, and that causes your oxygenation to fall. It interferes with athletic performance, and it makes you have trouble staying awake in the afternoon. So you're just not oxygenating. But that's really about it. Um, beyond those um, effects... I am not really aware that viscosity of the blood would affect, say, body weight or something like that. Um, I'd be surprised if it did. But, but it does have the effects that we just described. And, and this is one of the reasons why when people go to a plant-based diet, their blood pressure comes right down because their blood viscosity came down. Their blood circulates more easily and you don't need so much pressure to keep your blood circulating. That answer was on fire. That was fantastic. Well, well done, sir. This will be on the test. <laughs> uh, I also want to give a round of applause to Maria. Uh, boy, this just makes my day. At 1229, Maria writes, I went vegan in March. Cholesterol is down 40 points, and I've lost 25 pounds. She says, your podcast gives me weekly motivation. That is the best thing that I have heard all day. Thank you very much, Maria. Congratulations. Great. That's, that's wonderful. And, and you know, the, the thing that I really love best about this is, Chuck, you do a fabulous podcast and you've been very kind to let me be part of it. And it's no surprise that you have been number one in so many countries and people are following you everywhere. But the very best thing, the thing I like about this best, I like best about this podcast is that people tell other people about it because they learn things. They learn things that you might have shared or that I might have shared or other guests have shared. And it starts conversations and it starts getting people interested and intrigued to take better care of themselves, to take better care of the planet, to get the animals off their plates, to do all kinds of things that, that really make the world a better place. So that's what that's what I have to say. I like this. 
Absolutely. Uh, and th thank you for letting me be part of this podcast. You're silly. Thank you for letting me do this podcast. Uh, okay, let's grab a couple of more really quickly. Uh, rapid fire. We have a question from Tanya at 1229. You spoke about hormones and prostate cancer. What is a good diet for mild prostate cancer? Uh, prostate cancer is unlike some cancers where for many, many people, it it grows very slowly. The doctor finds it. Um, it's not really causing much harm. And so doctors will take a blood test called PSA, a prostate specific antigen. And if it's not really increasing too much, you, you can typically just leave it alone and just keep your eye on it for a long period of time. Fine. However, for some folks, it's going to start to grow. And if it starts to grow and it starts to spread and metastasize, it can kill you. So the doctors keep their eye on the blood test to make sure everything's okay. Dr. Dean Ornish, who was doing such wonderful work on heart disease, then focused his attention on prostate cancer and found that a healthy plant-based diet, vegan diet, helps keep those PSA levels from rising too fast. In fact, in the study for which he's really best known uh, in, this, in this domain, uh, uh, PSA levels actually improved, they dropped in the people following the diet. So what's the best diet for a person with uh, it's kind of slow-growing prostate cancer. No animal products at all. Vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans. I would emphasize tomatoes because of their lycopene and soy because soy products seem to be associated with better survival too. I would eliminate animal products completely, absolutely zero dairy. Dairy products are associated with prostate cancer progression. Um, keep oils really low. Lace up your sneakers. Go for a run. And that's uh, that in addition to the medical care that your doctor prescribes, that's a pretty good regimen. And uh, also, if uh, if you're curious about somebody who is eating a plant-based diet and is living with prostate cancer, uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Bruce Milray, uh, who is a friend of the show, who's written a book called A Plant-Powered Approach to Prostate Cancer, really where he just documents his journey uh, with his wife, Mindy, a fantastic couple, and uh, it's a fantastic read. So if you get a chance, uh, definitely pick that up. Um, last question today comes from Tina at 1232. How much iodized salt is enough for iodine requirements? Um, well, iodized salt, um, if you, to get the full day's dose of, of, of iodine, you probably, I haven't looked at this in a while, but I would say it's probably around a half a teaspoon, something like that, which is more than you're actually going to typically use. But you don't have to have all your iodine coming from iodized salt um, because you'll get some from your iodized salt, some from other foods that you might eat. But uh, what typically, typically people will say is maybe if in the course of the day you get a quarter or a third of a teaspoon of iodized salt, that'll get you a long way. All right, let's sneak in one more. Jenny at 1238. Uh, when is a good time to take B12? Does it really matter? No, it doesn't matter. Um, generally, it, it, it does not matter. You could take an empty stomach, full stomach. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Um, generally speaking, when you're taking supplements, unless it says you need to take it on an empty stomach, I would encourage you to take supplements with food. And that way, all the nutrients in the food are kind of buffering each other. Um, but no, with B12, it's absorbable um, with or without food. Dr. Neil Barnard, thank you so very much for being here, my friend. This has been fantastic. Well, thank you, Chuck.
A link to pick up your copy of Your Body and Balance is in the episode notes. And don't forget to join us for The Exam Room Live every Wednesday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on YouTube and Facebook. That is your best opportunity to ask experts like Dr. Barnard your questions. And you can also send them to me ahead of time on Twitter and Instagram. You can find me at Chuck Carroll, WLC. And if you are living in Canada, the Vancouver area, I'm going to be speaking at the Planted Expo there this weekend, Sunday, November 21st to be exact. That is taking place at the Vancouver Convention Center West, which I'm told is actually one of the world's most environmentally sustainable buildings. How cool is that? Plus, John Lewis, our friend, will be there, as will Drina Burton, who has done some incredible recipes, and she too has been on the exam room before. Both of them, friends of the show. And also at the Planted Expo, there will be more than 200 plant-based exhibitors. So this is a can't miss. If you live in the Vancouver area, come on out. I would love to see you there. And you can find more details about the Planted Expo at plantedlife.com. Today's episode of The Exam Room has been brought to you by the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund. Greg Ryder's love for animals was unrivaled. And today, the fund in his honor is dedicated to supporting organizations like the Physicians Committee that share that same passion, that same love that Greg had. And they're doing it through animal rescue efforts and by promoting a vegan lifestyle and even wildlife conservation. I encourage you, please visit GregoryRiderFund.org. That's Gregory, R-E-I-T-E-R, Fund.org to learn more about his incredible stories and about the animal issues they're working on and we should all be aware of. And while you're on that website, please also subscribe to their newsletter so you can keep up with everything that the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund is working on. And you can find a link to that website right now in the episode notes. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Neil Barnard for being here and raising our health IQs and helping us get a good night's sleep. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based.